is for the passionate Seahawks fans. The ones who care about scheme more than hot takes. The, 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 the ones who want X's and O's and not talking heads. From the eye in the sky. This is Seattle Overload. Seattle Overload. With your hosts, Matty F. Brown, Griffin Sturgeon, and Ty Dane Gonzalez. Let's go! Welcome to the Seattle Overload podcast, where... We have massive Seahawks free agency shenanigans to deal with. Griff, the Seahawks signed defensive tackle Draymond Jones in a move that completely goes against all of the stuff that John Schneider usually does when it comes to free agency. Jones is the largest free agent signing since Seattle signed a wide receiver, Sidney Rice, remember him, in 2011. Seattle paid, uh, well, they haven't paid, but they signed Jones to a three-year, $51.5 million contract. This deal will pay Jones $23.5 million in year one and $35.02 million over the first two years of his contract. It's a massive, massive deal. It was a big shock because... Certain guys had signed elsewhere, certain guys had moved on, certain guys looked like they were being cut. We wondered if it would be more of the same from Seattle, but this looks like a completely different strategy. And yeah, Griff, what was your immediate reaction? My immediate reaction was glee, joy, excitement. Um, I, I remember I remember watching him at OSU four years ago now. Um, and really liking him as a player, thinking he was probably like a second round pick with upside. Um, sure enough, with Denver, he's seemingly gotten better every year. He's put on about 10, 15 pounds, like 285 right now. I think he played at like 270. I think he weighed in at 270 at the combine. Um, that might be wrong, though. That can be fact checked easily. Um, nevertheless, though, it was, I remember watching him at OSU and thinking, you know, he's a speed, finesse, interior rusher. If he just could gain, 10, 15 pounds and not lose any speed, he could really, you know, breach his potential. And sure enough, that seems to be was what's happened. He seems about as fast as he was at OSU and his play strength has increased. It helps him against the run and also helps him uh, power guards. So that was something he couldn't do as much of um, at OSU. So he can kind of put together a full rush plan. So, and, and in keeping tabs with him <clears throat> throughout his career, like just here and there, like limited exposure when the Broncos are on TV and watch an occasional game, he'd show up and, and also like the clips that circulate on Twitter, he'd show up like, oh, cool. looks like he's, he's being what he could be. That's, that's awesome. Good for him. And then this past year, you know, with, the, uh, with him being due for a contract, you know, you're, those players get thrusted into the kind of conversation more often in the, the, um, the general conclusion was that he's a high-end player. And so sure enough, that fit my preconceived notion of him as well as my limited exposure. So um, yeah, I, I was happy about the move. And also it just it signals that they are trying to really improve the defensive line, like get that star player. Like they have a lot of, in my opinion, quality floor players, guys that get you 500 snaps, but they're not intended to be pro bowlers. They're not paid like they're intended to be pro bowlers. They're, they're guys that every team plays hundreds of snaps with, right? You need those guys, but if you could airdrop in on top of those calibers of player that they always end up finding, a guy like Draymond Jones or a high-end player, then your D-line can really you know, go, go from average at best to something better than that. 
in both phases, run and pass. So to me, the idea was, hey, they're finally getting that pass rusher. So um, I was pretty excited. Um, I went back and uh, started watching his tape. And um, I guess long story short is I'm pretty underwhelmed. Now, I, I know it's um, the idea that, um, and that's just my honest opinion of it. And like, I went in primed for wanting to like what I'm seeing. Because remember, like, I liked this guy before I started watching more in depth. Um, but uh, he, he's he's definitely a good pass rusher. But he's I don't think he is, I don't think he's the caliber of player that you're normally seeing getting these contracts. Now, the contract is you know, three years, 51 million, but the way it's structured, it really feels more like two years, 28 million. So I think they view him more as like a $14 million or $14 million per year kind of player. And that honestly is closer to what his tape shows me. Yeah, he gets um, uh, $30 million guaranteed and uh, $10 million for the first year cap hit. Right. And then, and then six, they can save 16 and a half million in his third season. So it definitely looks like they're either playing to, cut him or restructure in that third year. They're not going to let him play out that the the year at, at that um at that number. So they're kind of I think it's really well structured because it's if they get what they have paid for, they'll extend him. If they haven't, there isn't a lot of risk with that third year. They can get out of it pretty easily. Um but to and we'll break down what we're seeing from him. I've only seen now four and a half games of his um uh twenty twenty two. So Against Seattle, I mean, he's he's cooking as a pass rusher. Like that's that is his best ball. Like you you want to see as much of that as possible. Um, against Houston, he was pretty much shut down by their guards. Um, against Jacksonville, I thought he was shut down with the exception of one play at a really good bull rush. Against the Raiders, he has a quality game, like a legit a quality game. He's not crazy or anything, but he's doing things against the run that will really break in break down. But then as a pass rusher. So some uh, decent bull rushes, some kind of slow mounting corner moves. Like they're not crazy early in the snap wins, but like if the quarterback was had to hold the ball for a little bit, it probably would result in a quarterback hit or maybe a sack. Um, so with, with all that said, like I need to keep watching. Hopefully I see more games like the Seahawks game where he gave their guards trouble. Um, but so I'm kind of, I'm kind of cooled a little bit in terms of my excitement. Um, but as, as a run defender, there are a lot of qualifications there, but he is a little bit better against the run in certain contexts that I thought he would be. Anyway, what, what was your initial reaction, Eddie? Yeah. Similar as, as though, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily massively dominant, but I think what stands out to me is more that he's able to add disruption to plays, not just in the clear passing downs, but like from a variety of different positions at different times, sometimes you wouldn't expect it to happen, and it does happen. So, like, head up on a, t on a tackle is a four technique. Some of his best stuff w happens in against the run, where he's able to quick swim into the backfield and blow up the play, and uh, his tackle for loss numbers kind of reflect that as well. Like, the, the fact that he he's able to take his shots, and Pete Carroll spoke about kind of being stuck in the same mode up front and how they kind of need to change things and get guys who can split doubles and get guys who can uh, get into the backfield and penetrate. Now, I don't think Jones is a double-team splitter necessarily, but I do think he's someone who can take his shots and and penetrate into the backfield and cause kind of uh, a disruption rather than just sort of staying and playing the block or trying to anchor down. I think he 
he kind of fits the different mode that they want. Uh, and if you look at his numbers, uh, metrics wise, uh, he had in 2020 an 8.3% pressure percentage per PFF, a 7.5% pressure percentage per SIS. 21, that's 9.5% or 8.9%. And then 22, 10% or 8.6%. Uh, tackle for loss numbers, nine tackles for loss in 2020, 11 tackles for loss in 2021, 13 tackles for loss in 2022, and then 6.5 sacks in 2020. 5.5 sacks in 2021, 6.5 sacks in 2022. So he has been like consistently productive. That's not like the craziest numbers. Like this, that's not like the tier one or even the tier two, right? But it is across the board, uh, you know, across those three years, but also run and pass causing disruption. And you, Griffin, also you found it was interesting how it's not like his pressure percentage is all coming on third and long. Like it's spread across the board in a nice way where first down, second down, third down, he's able to get that. And I think that shows again the, the point that he is able to uh, you know, contribute his skill set on on all downs. And so for Seattle, like and and just looking at the way he plays and how he fits in Seattle, I think he is more of a a three tech. But also like a four a four eye four tech guy, you want him to be his one on one as much as possible. You don't want him to have to play combination blocks or double teams. He's not that type of player. But when his uh, quickness can win and his hand usage, uh, th- that's where he's very very good. And he's not as quick as. You might think from like the highlights, but he's very good at timing the snap up, and there are there is some quickness there. It's just not like elite. Yeah, and you know that I I don't you know I tweeted when it happened that he's comfortable with the mirror stepping techniques that caused issues across the line. Like I don't necessarily think that's right anymore. Like having watched well, more of him, like he can do it, but it's more that he's able to from those positions penetrate and when he's one on one he's comfortable with it it's just when right. say a tight end comes to combo him or say he's playing the two eye or heavy heavy three tech and he gets comboed on say like duo or something that's where some issues happen so like he is an he's an interesting sort of player because in terms of the scheme like if they're schematically going to run two four uh, over G fronts at the same rate that they did last year in all manner of situations, it'll be a disaster because he can't play as a defensive tackle in a forefront with two wide nine edges like reliably in all situations. But what he can do is work in odd fronts like bare, uh, tight, uh, whatever. As long as that, because that keeps him one on one, and he can play aggressive, so power step. But also, like he can be in certain situations, depending on what set you get, what flank, he can be, you know, on a, on a tackle or even maybe on a tight end and and be one on one still and penetrate and get upfield. So, I really like that situation for him. So to me, it kind of implies that, like maybe maybe Jones is more the is the return of the big end to the defense. Maybe that's sort of overanalyzing the move. But, but ultimately, usage-wise, he has to be playing in more bare and odd fronts. You can't. And so they have to offset their, their high usage of it, of the 2-4 over G nickel front with more odd fronts. That could be nickel um, bare yeah. fronts, like a penny or what he used to call falcon. But like <laughs> he has to be one-on-one as a three-tech or, or a four-eye. And that's where his... 
his uh, best reps will happen and and where he can cause issues and be disruptive run and pass and i think for me like he's not i mean obviously the the numbers go up each time it's interesting you think of it as a two-year deal and you know i think that's correct i think that's the right read of the situation and you think about you know when they signed michael bennett cliff averill that's obviously an easy thing to go to because it's so successful but those at the time are two-year deals of uh ascending players where they took a shot and it panned out really well right and this yeah. is the same kind of thing where i think jones uh draymond jones across the league is viewed as an ascending player i think he you know in terms of his production it's kind of been level for the past three years in terms of the metrics but like this could be something where if it pans out then they hit massive if it doesn't pan out you he's sort of got a reliable baseline floor and Absolutely, it's only a yeah. two-year deal so it it's uh it's not that we're not excited about it i i, I just adding uh some analysis some some thought on you know it's not it's not it's very exciting that it was such a big deal especially for the seahawks um it's an interesting change up to how how they have in the past approached the position i think jones if he hits could really hit yeah yeah um I, i agree i mean he is absolutely a useful player he's a he's a good he's a high floor player um to give a little bit more context to like his, his pressure numbers. So like ESPN pass rush win rate tracking, which is not subjective at all in that they have a very strict definition and it's all based on like a, a GPS chip tracking. So it's, it's, it's hard to determine whether or not that's accurate, but it does tend to correlate the guys that rank highly in it do tend to correlate with guys that we generally think are good with the occasional like head scratching figure that's way up there or something um so draymond he ranks like what was it eighth or ninth in that figure um that's pretty good and then in pffs uh they're kind of they have it's technically not uh pressure rate it's pass rush productivity where they weigh sacks and hits a little slightly higher but for all intents and purposes it is so his overall prp was ranked 11th and then 13th in win percentage so that tends to correlate with uh it tends to match up with espn's win rate right um but then his pff grade out of 73 players is is ranked 36th uh as a his pass rush grade um now we everyone that's listening to this knows how we feel about using pass rush grades indiscriminately in, in in general um but then if you go to uh his his uh pass rush um or his prp or his pass rush productivity um against true true pass sets he's 21st and then his win percentage is 24th out of 73 so he's still like in the top third but it's more like at the bottom of that top third um like in true like passer situations and i think that explains the discrepancy between his overall win rate and prp and and how pff is viewing his his play overall that suggests that a a good deal of his Production is kind of like unblocked or maybe play action where it can be kind of funky and stuff. Now there is an art to getting pressure against play action. And, yeah, and I think he, I think he has that. Art, he, and you know? he, he did and it I, OSU, and it, like right. And I, I think that is a, a big factor as well. Like Seattle's uh, play action pass rush has been difficulties for a while, and they they need someone who can, again, I keep using the word, but disrupt from you know, the kind of tough, tougher or less typical spots 
Right. Right. And, and, and like, like you said, like he was used everywhere, right? Like a lot of the stuff, like the, the defense needed him to do that, but like for his sake, you could almost argue he was being sacrificed. Like there weren't a lot of opportunities to get pressure. So in, in picking out what Denver did, cause Denver had a good scheme, but they did what they needed to do. Picking out how we think how Seattle needs to tweak things. I think that Seattle can actually provide for him more opportunities to get more clean one-on-one looks like because what does bear defense do a bear front it gives you five guys and your in your ends or b gap players they're effectively three techniques they're not like the classic two gap being three four ends of, of your really now they'll have to he'll have to do some four eye and four technique stuff where he'll have to two gap and we'll look at that but the meat and potatoes is and they're the seahawks three four the three four that they when they do run it the one that they ran with Ken Norton Jr. and the one that they switched to after the first four weeks this past season, first four or five weeks, they have their ends one gap, not two gap. I think also because there's five guys on the line of scrimmage, you're more likely to get a one-on-one with your guard when it's a pass when it's a pass set. So I think they can provide him more one-on-one opportunities, more opportunities to get upfield with a staggered stance, first step being explosively minded. And he can kind of show off what his skill set is. And I could actually see his pressure rate climb. Now, because he can do other things, like you said, Maddie, when you were talking about like a return to the return to like, you know, the classic big end usage, the way that they've used them with Red Bryant and Michael Bennett. This past year, we did see them like their check to um, their check toward like tight end wing sets, like two tight ends to one side and everything was to play an underfront. And so he absolutely fits playing the five technique in an underfront. Um, when you need to check to that. So, and they've been doing that for a while. So. Right. Right. And it's, it's, it's totally like, it's not foreign to them at all. So he, he fits that. He does give them that flexibility. Um, that said, I think there's at the same time, I think there's merit to have having him opposite the tight end, have him be the weak end so that he's always assured the one-on-one for pass rush purposes and maybe try to go find a bigger body because, then you're, you might be worried about those double teams that we talked about coming from the tight end on a down block if it's a gap scheme run. So there, there are just a lot of factors here. I think the 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 the, the best the 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 take home should be that he's versatile. He gives them flexibility, and um, under the premise that they tweak the scheme as necessary, or basically do what they did in the middle month of the season, which is what they did in 2020 and 2021 in base and nickel, I think he can be really productive and he can be that player that they want him to be and he can live up to the contract. But it just it's dependent on that. If, if they keep the identical scheme with the identical front usage and the identical personnel packages and all those contexts, the run defense will be even worse. If people thought Puna Ford couldn't play the heavy two eye or the heavy three, Draymond in that context specifically is even worse than Puna as a run defender in that context. So like... If, if we're comparing apples to apples and oranges to oranges, if they keep everything the same, the run defense will get even worse. So provided that they go back to the scheme they should, he there can be huge dividends here, but it's all on, on the premise that they, they play the scheme that they need to. So I don't know. Beyond that, I don't have any other like Draymond uh, thoughts. So, Well, on the, on the tackles for loss thing as well, just to add a more advanced uh, statistic, Statistic to that, Next Gen Stats had Jones recording a 4.5% run stuff rate last season, which was 10th highest among defensive tackles. 
I've tried looking up what RAM stuff rate means. Uh, I can't find their definition, but I imagine that's similar to getting in the backfield. <laughs> um, so, also, it sounds like Seattle pushed heavily for Jones, and he told uh, Josina Anderson of uh, CBS Sports, I feel like Seattle has the biggest belief in me. They have a really promising team. I'm looking forward to transitioning to that city. So clearly a big fan of that. I should also say that in Denver, it seemed to end badly. Now, I actually watched the play he got hurt on, and that looked like a nasty, jarred, horrid play where he gets blocked in the back after winning against the center. But it did end badly, and I think there are signs that Motor-wise, it didn't look like he was fully going out for it on, on certain plays. Griff, you, you kind of saw similar things to that, right? Yeah, he definitely seemed checked out um, Like for like a month stretch. Uh, I know I said I only watched so many games, but watching that Jags game, um, he did not seem... He wasn't like his usual self in his mm. body language. Not to infer too much because it's hard to know what's going on in the mind of someone. He didn't seem like he was happy to be there. Um, combined with his tweets and stuff, I, I, mean, I wouldn't be shocked if what I'm seeing on tape where it seems like he's not what I thought he was is really because he doesn't have his heart in it. And, you know, it makes me want to go back and watch his 2021 stuff. Maybe that's really the true Draymond. And if, you know, he's coming to Seattle and it's all hunky-dory, you know, he might he might be even better. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I do think that was a variable, though. Yeah. No doubt. And then as a pass rusher, it's worth mentioning that his style is very much of uh, quickness, hands, and then ripping through. Like he's six foot two. He has to rip through guys because he's shorter than most offensive linemen. He looks to get hands on and then rip through and wins wide most of the time on guards. If he's going to get activate power, he really needs to be kind of stunted into it. Or or uh, line up wide and then bull mm -hmm. rush like uh, is he's not a power guy. He, you described him as a finesse guy, Griff. So I think it's worth. What does that mean, Griff? It's well, it's the foundation. So by finesse, it means like when he's rush when he's a three technique lined up on the outside shoulder of a guard. His first step is upfield, pressing the outside shoulder or outside hip, foot, what have you, of the guard. So th that's what he, that's what he's doing first. He's trying to he's trying to see if he can gain depth on the guard upfield on the outside. And then from there, if he gets position, he's looking to use really technique, like to, to defeat their hands, to clear their outside shoulders so that he can rip past them or swim over them to then work his way back to the quarterback. Now, again, finesse, rush plan. So if they overset or they defeat him, he has answers. Like I'm watching a play right now against the Chargers. He does the same thing. The guard jump sets him and he quickly... He quickly um, clubs or really slaps his, the inside arm and then swims over and he gets in and he forces Herbert to to check it down pretty quickly. So, um, like, he knows what he's doing. He knows how to rush the passer. Like, th that that's his calling card. Like, he's a technique guy. Um, but, like, power comes second. So his power works better when his speed is stressed. And that was his problem at OSU. He would have the same rush plan. But when it would be time to convert the power, he didn't have the body for it all the time. Um, 
sure enough, like every once in a while he can hit, like he has some devastating bull rushes. They just don't happen that frequently. Uh, but he's, he's got some of it though. So that that's, it's, it's enough for his, for his theory to work. Um, so, and it's, you know, it, it, it maximizes him. So this is a real example of sort of his stock winning to our, to our, uh, to the point that Griff was making and about him being finesse and what I was saying. So this is second 11 early in the Baltimore game. And you can see here he is lined up as the left three technique, got this wide angle on the guard. He knows that this is pass. Uh, one is shotgun, two, the running back. Is that even a running back? 17 on the Ravens? It might be I don't know. <laughs> this, this is the problem like with the numbers anyway. The split is telling him everything's telling him past this tackle even, so this is this is sort of the foundation to how he wins. Um, yeah, and and this is stuff that we should say like Shelby Harris showed a bits of stuff like this, right? Like, I mean, Shelby, yeah, Shelby's just past his prime, but like this was Shelby's game too. He, I mean, Shelby Harris is one of the most productive three techniques in the league for a good four or five years. Um, and he, he provided a little bit of this, um, uh, but you know, obviously the idea is that Draymond's way younger and yeah, he's going to give you more of it. And the age is big. Like he's 26 years old. <laughs> so right. if he does right. keep ascending and again, it's, it's, that's why it reminds me kind of the Bennett Avel stuff. Um, right. And, I, and when yeah. was the last time Seattle had a guy who, who would win wide at three tech with finesse? don't remember um, probably jaron reed 2018 yeah for that one season yep so that is exciting as well right at least of guys that could also play early downs yeah it'd be there you go and uh as i i need to get up some more of the film but i think that it's been posited that maybe there is potential for potential for this meaning that Jalen Carter is not the pick for Seattle. I don't buy into that. Like I, I think immediately, you know, okay, this guy's an interior disruptor. Jalen Carter's an interior disruptor. Seattle no longer has a, a need at the position. But like Carter's more of a defensive tackle, like in terms of you could play him in that two eye, you can play him in the three tech, you will find a you could play him at zero blocks. technique even yeah yeah he he could play he could like le legitimately across the line now uh draymond jones can play across the line but not not necessarily in all situations and not as a one tech or zero tech nose tackle and you worry about him in, on combos but carter's much more of a defensive tackle jones much more of like a three four end or like a you know what the five tech or big end was called in seattle's old uh four three defense so it doesn't really it's more a pick that it ensures that they you know they have depth in that kind of three four end uh area the the draft is actually quite deep in and it's quite funny as well like we mentioned well you you mentioned on, on your on your twitter griff how that 2019 draft it was full of kind of big end five tech candidates you had Rashawn gary you had draymond jones you had charles amenahu you had Zach Allen, who also got paid, and we'll talk about him in relation to the Seahawks. Mm -hmm. And then the 
guys who went before all of them, LJ Collier, remember him, and Jerry Tillery, the first two taken in that draft, they didn't pan out, but all the other ones did. So, yeah, that's fun. I mean, I, I someone corrected me. Gary was taken before those, but then they also he is not a big end anymore. He's an outside linebacker, more of an edge. Oh yeah, yeah, so, that's yeah. So. What are you talking about? Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So, in that, you know, is it a classic John Schneider overcorrection? No, probably not, but they they would have felt burned in that draft. And I think the way that they're approaching this, so Quinton Jefferson was released today, Adam Schefter reported, Seattle saved uh, basically $4.5 million doing that move. Puna Ford is still unsigned. And uh, Shelby Harris has been released for, uh, and Seattle saves some money against the cap. I can't find exactly how much. But they saved money against the cap doing that. He may return to the team, but there was talk that they explored a trade of him. And is this a is this move like a big free agency signing, especially after that offseason where they kept their guys together and they re-signed Puna Ford, they re-signed Brian Monet. That you know, they've they've really tried to keep their own in-house. Is this now like an overcorrection of, well, we're gonna let the whole kind of front seven walk because we'll get onto the inside linebacker situation. They've even let running backs walk. Is this an overcorrection? Because Bob, uh, Bob Condota of the uh, Seattle Times, he reported that the Seahawks also made a serious run at Zach Allen, who got paid incidentally by Denver for fairly similar contract figures. Uh, but they simply couldn't find a way to make it work financially to bring in both Draymond Jones and Allen. And Jones was their top target. So it's kind of wild that Seattle was that aggressive at fixing the interior of the defensive line. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, is it an overreaction kind of to answer that? I only, I only know how to answer that by turning into two, two different conversations, like run defense and pass rush. If it's pass rush, no. I mean, if you want to, you, you had a problem with your four-man rush, you can only improve that really by getting the guys for it. And they definitely didn't have the guys to have a potent four-man rush. So you, you need you need dudes for that. Um, if it's run defense, then you know letting all these guys go then maybe it is a little bit of an overreaction now there are questions there because as much as i appreciated shelby harris you can't pay him that cap hit you need to cut him and see if you can bring him back for like five million um essentially what they gave reed um and we'll talk about reed uh puna four i mean he's an unrestricted free agent right and he i don't know what his market will be i'm sure that league wide will view him as having a down year so that should make him cheaper but like we can isolate Puna Ford's performance. When they played 3-4, Puna Ford is still Puna Ford. When they didn't play 3-4, when they put him in bad situations, he was bad. But you know who was even worse in those situations? Draymond Jones. So like this past year, it's just Ezero Evero didn't play Draymond Jones in those situations that I just mentioned very much. So like I don't like what I'm saying, I feel like should be obvious and it feels asinine to say, well, does John Schneider know that? But like, how does he perceive this? Like it, it doesn't need to be rocket science. We can simply like they know their own internal numbers. They know what opponent yard per carry is when they play bear, which is three, four um, or even tight to start the season. They were still average in it and they switched from tight to bear and they were even better in bear. So the whole thing is perplexing to me. I think it's more of a less of a performance review 
and more of just a cap consideration thing. And I think that they're still going to make another move in addition to Jaron Reed. Um, I think Jalen Carter is still in play, at least for football reasons. Again, there's a lot up in the air now. There's probably a lot yeah. of stuff that we don't know. But football reasons, this doesn't preclude them because they still have – I mean, they lost four guys. They've only gained two. So the fourth being Brian Monet. They cut Quinn Jefferson. Puna Ford's unrestricted free agent, currently not signed with anyone, and they obviously cut Shelby Harris. So they've lost four. They've only gained two. They need to find two more. Yeah, you could easily draft two, but um, I, I don't know if that's it's, risky. It's risky, especially and, if you're playing three of these guys like most of the time. Right. But um, right. All, all, all pro Seahawks very kindly donated five dollars. Appreciate that. And with a question, would you guys say if Seattle picks Jalen Carter, that this defensive line could be one of the best in the league, as in very high ceiling? Absolutely, yes. However, uh, as Griff said, there's obviously off the field stuff. There's the incident that's been reported. We've heard some other things. We'll see what comes of that. Where really is the, the the part of the draft process, which isn't very fun for, for us and not very interesting for you guys to hear, which is, yeah, he's the best player in the draft. However, like, you know, there's a lot of intangibles that go into being a good football player that we are very in a poor position to judge, given that we don't get to interview the guy. It's also, if I was working for a team, it would be hell to unpack all of that stuff. And maybe Seattle decides they don't want that problem, especially of how they've been burned in the past. So thank you so much for the donation. But, uh, yeah, this D the D line with Carter on it, it you know, it, if you try and remove all that other stuff would be incredible. Like, <laughs> because yeah. Carter's incredible. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, Carter, Carter is the, uh, when we say like, oh, to make the over G stuff work, you need this guy and that guy yeah. to even be passable. He's one of those guys. He's so, the guy who can BS that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and did for Georgia. It's yeah. I mean, so like when we go back to the 24 or 2015 Seahawks defense, they played this front. Now they did play it in single high the whole time, like gapped out, mm -hmm. you know, so that makes it easier. Like, yeah, Seattle's numbers in it were relatively better. Seattle's problem this year is that they played this front paired with too high a lot. So that was kind of the core issue. But one of the reasons why that front worked so well was not because of, ironically, not because of their interior guys. They just had decent guys. But Michael Bennett was such a, I mean, he was a top five run defender in the league that year. Um, so, yeah. I mean, he just makes plays. So, like, you, you need a guy that just absolutely devastates. And Carter would be one of those guys. And Draymond is in the was in the spirit of that although he's not entirely that although there is a way they could use him in two four that could make him closer to that but we're not talking about that this moment i think you got to play queued up here though yeah so here here we have draymond uh as the uh the head up uh four technique again similar to seattle there's only so many ways to play defense but on the left here you have two tight ends so this probably would have looked like <clears throat> Excuse me. This probably would have looked like a bear look where this guy would have been head up. This guy, uh, Jones, would have been a three technique. This guy would have been a three technique. But because of the pair tight ends, they've sort of bumped over towards it. And this head up position is where you see rather than a six inch forward step, knock the crap out of the guy uh, and play a shade and stay outside of him and do not get reach blocked when you're B gap. Because you're head up, 
you take more of a six inch lateral step and then you mirror his angle of departure and and try and stay in play and play a gap and half or basically two gap now if we watch jones play this technique and it where he has difficulty is when this tight end comes and has to combo him that's and that's a difficult assignment right but uh this is a good play that griff's found yeah so i mean i was i was critical and said you don't want him mere stepping a lot you don't want him two gapping a lot but on one-on-ones when he's engaged with tackles he actually yes. does really well he wins leverage he has the anchor for it um and he has the technique for it he was actually way more technically proficient than i thought he'd be i mean look at his hand placement he gets them i think actually so like clint hurt he likes the hand supinated so his hand like where you're more like this uh, with thumbs up it looks like his hands are more like he's making a 90 degree angle now uh clint hurt may not like that but point being is the hand placement is great look at the hip level look at the pad level all that then he's able to control the block and shed to get to the ball right that's what two gapping is all about play inside out so that's a really good rep the only problem is that when he's mirror stepping in that exact look if that tight end down blocked on him he gets sent flying so yeah. and and you know what look the the big thing there is to keep your outside pad down but his outside pad is high when he strikes mm. uh guys he kind of exposes it a bit more than he some you know perhaps could avoid uh doing that to an extent so um maybe that's a hand strike thing as well because if you strike with the thumbs up again uh it's keeping you um lower right it's keeping right. it above your head it's above your eyes uh right whereas this is more kind of out but uh yeah this is impressive because guys here he technically has and in Seattle system, how they've taught in the past, technically he still has this B gap, but if the ball is going to cut back, then you, you bounce back into the C and that's exactly what he did here. Um, and what, what I was saying as well, when, yeah, when he's one-on-one -on -one in the four eye or four tech position, he's fine. It's just when that outside pad gets high and a tight end comes in, he gets uh, knocked around a bit. Right. So, so that's a good example of like down in, down out stuff, being able to hold the line, showing like the natural anchor that he has. Cause really, I mean, he's, he's not 300 pounds. He's, he's not even, well, like a lot of those guys are more than 300 pounds. He's not even 300. He's not even 290. So, I mean, it, those guys can, can lose ground. And this is an example where obviously he doesn't, and it shows that he can do that. Um, there are a lot of guys that are 280, 285 that can't like, so it's good that he it's good that he can um now last last play we'll talk about for jones here he's a three technique and this is this two four five front now denver's running this because it's the start of a two minute drill it's first and ten uh and here's the two one two uh and then here's the four the four linebackers because it's a three four system and you can see how Jones is a three tech and you have a two eye here um beautifully drawn from me under center formation and this is an example of his lateral quickness or maybe this is the wrong play no that's that's the not good play <laughs> that's the bad play that that's the Puna Ford did nothing wrong play oh well that was the timestamp. 
that's the no no do the uh do f- uh, 41 17. I thought this was a mirror stepping play. 41 17 is the other mirror stepping play where he, he gets into the backfield. Okay. There's no there's so, no lap. So, so this is same alignment, same assignment, right? He's two gapping. Yep. But this this shows how he, even from like a, you know, a, an even stance that he has right now, where it's, it does, it's not conducive toward getting north and into the backfield, no, right? It's sideways. He, he can use his lateral suddenness to still get into the backfield and, and create something disruptive. So it's one thing to stop the offense from making a positive play, but it's another to be able to do that and still find ways to be negative. And this is him causing a negative play as well. So like even when Seattle had a good run defense in 2020, 2021, and when they played bear in 2022, they, they weren't able to be penetrative in it. So like they would hold the line really well, but they wouldn't create like, negative explosives you could say Mm -hmm. um so this is an example of him able to do that so even though technically denver's not in bear right here or they're in three four personnel but it's technically like under space in a way because the the, the nose tackle is playing a one yeah if you just imagine 98 playing a zero technique then boom it's all of a sudden it's seattle's bear with the check into a four because you got a tight end so um this is an example of hey they can actually create negative plays here and, and Nwosu is another guy who can create negative plays so now they've got two guys that can create negative plays on top of everyone else just being solid mm. uh, as much as people want to disagree like in this picture right here when Seattle ran the identical front more or less Puna Ford Shelby Harris did fine they were absolutely fine but they weren't getting into the backfield so Jones can get into the backfield here now if Puna was playing nose like he did in 2020 he absolutely was getting in the backfield and that's what makes bringing him back exciting because you compare him with Draymond on the field at the same time. Yeah. And then you draft Carter, then you're really cooking. But, um, yeah. And, and, and this Vortec play from, um, from Jones here, he does this against the pass, uh, like play action stuff too. I yes, think for yeah. me, this is the biggest thing he brings. This, this, this is why you sign him. You don't, you don't necessarily sign him for the, Okay, the, the 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 three tech like passing down stuff that's an added bonus, but this kind of ability to disrupt against the run uh, and then you know the layers off that the play the play fakes that's the big deal for me because they as you said Griff they haven't had that and because right. he understands he about betting yeah he understands blocking schemes yeah so so there you go right now. Other things did happen on the D line, and before we we get to that, uh, all pro Seahawks, thank you again for the donation. What about Anderson at number five and Keon White uh, at twenty overall? We spoke about Anderson. Uh, we did a whole podcast. Check it out on Will Anderson, Jalen Carter, or Tyree Wilson. Uh, Anderson, I was a bit more down on than I expected to be, but I can talk myself into that. And then Keon White, we will cover. We will, we will have an Edge episode. We were planning to do that this Tuesday, and then we remembered it's free agency. So that should come later this week where we talk Keon White. And interesting, really, how this draft, like there's a lot of kind of three, four ends. And I'd love, Griff, on, on that Thursday to talk about, you know, how they compare to this 2019 class, which is now all getting paid of the kind of five tech types. But um, we can do that on Thursday. Now, 
other things on the defensive line. So we talked about how Quinton Jefferson got released. We talked about how Shelby Harris got released. We've talked about uh, Puna Ford. Seattle did pick up Jaron Reed. They've uh, signed him to a two-year deal with a max of $10.8 million. That is a a bit more than I thought it would be, given that he had like a down year, supposedly, in Green Bay. And I've seen a few of his clips and was like, oof, that's, uh, that's some rough stuff going on. But Reed brings, I think, a mentality to the locker room that they didn't replace when, you know, he fell out of the front office over uh, his perceived worth. And now he's back. I think that's a big locker room presence ad. We know Clint Hurt loves him. Like Clint Hurt was so yeah. upset when they let John Reed walk, not just for his leadership, but also the fact that he is, um, y- you know, he, he tries hard. Uh, he, he really fights against the run and uh, selfless as a pass rusher. But yeah, mainly the kind of uh, alpha mentality uh, on the field that um, I think Hurt, Hurt was clearly a, <clears throat> was clearly a massive fan of. So that's a big uh, re-signing in, in that aspect. But in terms of playing, and you know, I'm sure he won't earn 10.8 million dollars. The incentives will be interesting in that, and the price of stuff like that is going up. Like um, it's not. It's not as so, much as it may first seem. So I, so my perception is the same as yours that he's not as good as against the run as he was when he left. But I offer some cause for cope there. I think because if we go back to the year that he had ten and a half sacks, twenty eighteen, as a Seahawk, that was also probably his worst year as a run defender. Now he wasn't bad; he just wasn't as good as he was the year before. He wasn't as good as he was the two years after. So the conclusion there is that it seemed like he was trying to put as much as he could into pass rush and it came at the expense of his run defense sure enough when his run defense recovers his pass rush tanks the following two years right so i feel like it's just he can't be the complete player he wants to be but then he goes to kansas city and they run they're all about pass rush they often have bad run defense chris jones frank clark they all get after it right so i think he's thinking like hey i want to I want to get after and be a pass rusher again. So I remember just watching him on the broadcast and on like when Kansas City was on primetime games and stuff in 2021 and be like, man, Reed isn't like his anchor's gone. This looks a lot like 2018 again. So I'm thinking he's just trying to be a pass rusher. So and then now I didn't watch him in Green Bay, but I suspect I mean, everyone that I've spoken to that has watched him does not. They do not have good things to say. They're (laughs) saying he's not as good as he was. I'm wondering, is it? He's trying to be a pass rusher, and he can't. He And even if he could be a pass rusher, he never was able to be a pass rusher and a run defender at the same time. So one thing we do know is that he's capable of having very good like run technique. That's stuff you can control. Even if like the traits aren't there, you can still control your technique. So the, the thinking is with this, like they're not bringing him in to be a pass rusher, right? So I'm thinking Clint Hurts, like, well, he knows how to play the position. And they're, they're only going to bring him in if there's a commitment to playing the run. And if th- that deal is incentive laden, he has every reason to try to reestablish himself as a run defending force, um, of which he was never elite at, but he was high quality, right? So, I mean, that's where my thinking goes. But so I just, I just hope that he's 
all in on being a run defender pretty much. And he's not trying to get up field, not trying to jump the snap. And he's just reading his, reading his keys and just playing blocks the way he should. Um, so that, that's where my mind goes. Now I do want to watch him in green Bay and try to look for that. Like, is he trying to jump the snap? Is he trying to put his eggs in one basket? That being getting up field more instead of, you know what I mean? So, yeah. And if anyone can sort of recalibrate him as a player, her and how clearly they had a connection that that should be able to work out. And, he, you know, he turns 31 years old in May, but the way I, in December, sorry, but the way I view that is Jefferson, the reason Jefferson got cut, like if Jefferson had played the run like okay and bought that pass rush juice, there's no way they'd have cut him. And he did bring right. pass rush juice, but the problem was he was like basically a liability oh, against the run. Right. Like right. absolutely awful, like really bad. Like you, you just spoke about guys looking to rush the passer and not do other things as well. Jefferson is an example of that. And yes, he was put in some poor situations. And we should say about Reed, like his best run D work, you know, the technique stuff you speak about, Griff, that we saw in Seattle, that came out of the fronts that we predict Seattle will be going back into. So 2020, Reed had really solid run defenses, the three technique, and obviously good enough to uh, inspire confidence in him asking for a raise, which didn't happen. And obviously he then ended up on the Kansas City Chiefs. But that was in three, four looking bare fronts, uh, playing a three technique and absolutely smacking guys back. Now, interestingly, when, when Seattle was doing that, so they were the three, four front, the bare front, the two, three techniques, the five guys down the line. Of sh- Am I back? Uh-oh. We good? Yeah, you're here. I got so excited and I knocked my, my mic out. Um, when they were doing that, it was still in 4-3 personnel. So basically, and this isn't very basic, but Reed was away from the Leo defensive end, so Carlos Dunlap. He was uh, to the Sam linebacker, which was, if you remember back in those days, it was KJ Wright down at the line of scrimmage, which meant when Seattle had to adjust, they didn't bump the, the three technique outside because there was a guy rushing in Dunlap. They bumped the guy opposite the other three technique outside. So he's still lining up as a three technique, but he was technically the big end or the five tech playing three tech. But then when they need to bump out, so play under, or if they got empty and they needed to get into a four or down front for pass rush purposes, that guy would go outside the tackle and Reed got a load of those assignments. So he is versatile and well, and experienced to, and obviously he's played loads of football too, but we've just it's cool that we've seen him do the things well in Seattle that he's now going to be doing again, we presume. Because there is no way that they can run the 2-4-5, Nicol G as their every front in, in a static nature as well. There's just no way. The peak Versus Com- 11, yeah. And they've obviously got massive on personnel, like getting different personnel in, but also schematically they've got to go massive. They've got to do- they got to blend in 2020, 2021 a lot more than they did last year. And the thing is, if, if they recommit to doing that, then theoretically they're setting up more second and longs where you can merit playing two, four, five, and then you get more out of it when you do use it. So, I mean, you got to take care of business on first and 10 and second and short, second and medium, then set up the, the second and longs and the third and mediums, the third and longs. Because even their, their third down run defense was so bad because teams could, 
they catch him in the two four five, which makes sense to call on third and four, but then a simple draw play would go for six yards, or they just run straight up inside zone or a counter play for an explosive on third and seven, even like take the Panthers game, for example. So um yeah, they they have to figure the scheme out and it starts there, but yeah, you you gotta replace these snaps. So I mean Reed is it could be fine, you know. I mean, and a lot of this really depends on what the opportunity cost is because it depends on what Shelby Harris costs. Like, I mean, I think Harris is probably better than Reed, but he might cost twice the amount, you know. Uh, maybe they can still bring Puna forward back. Like, he, he's so proven um, in what they should be and what they want to be. I would even pay him $8 million a year, but they're, they can't invest too much at the position. So, it, it just depends. Um, yeah, and we should mention as well that Miles Adams is still uh, on, under contract with the team. I think he's on some one of these tender deals, and he is like an end kind of depth f- for the team who can, uh, you know, play the kind of three-tech. Uh, that's where his best football is, three-tech and then a bit of five-tech. But, uh, yeah, they... With Brian Monet uh, coming off a bad uh, knee injury, like Carol was described that quite seriously, that ACL injury. He wasn't that optimistic. It, it didn't sound. Getting more nose depth w- would be a, a smart idea. There's also Jared Hewitt, who had an like, up and down, okay, preseason uh, in his first year of football, uh, who, who's more of like a three-tech kind of dude. So they could definitely use one or two more bodies, and I'm sure they'll bring them in. There is also, of course, the draft. And Reed's contract as glitchy as the numbers read. Uh, if you look at it, really, it's it's like one year's five million, four million dollars. So it's not crazy amounts. And Harris maybe will return as well. Now, Griff still focusing on the front seven, but looking at the second level, the inside linebacker position is scaring me. So. <laughs> Yeah, Jordan Brooks is coming off an ACL injury, which we knew was going to happen, and supposedly he's making great progress. Uh, that's the accounts that we we've heard from Pete Carroll, and that's great, and that's brilliant. He plays the Mike linebacker position. <coughs> Seattle in base defense. Now they'll play nickel a fair bit, even if it's not two four five, but it's three three five in a bear look. They'll they'll only need one inside linebacker, but they still have a base defense of three four. They still need a second inside linebacker, and right now that is Tanner Muse or uh, John Rattigan. Or is Tanner Muse even under contract? I don't know. That's a good question. I I don't think he is. I think Rattigan got uh, one of these tender wave of the things. But anyway, so the depth is a problem, and you know we sort of presumed, oh well, Cody Barton, who played solid slash good football, albeit had two dodgy open field moments, which stick in the mind. But he played good football when he was off the ball, which was his position he was drafted to play in 2021 and 2022. For some reason, he became like a bizarre scapegoat of of the whole defensive failings in a way that often happens, unfortunately, with sports fandom. But he, or, I mean, we both really liked what he brought to the team, particularly uh, the coverage options he allowed Seattle to play uh, in base. You like typically you wouldn't have uh, both linebackers who can carry roots deep, but Barton was able to do that, and his safety background showed up. And 
yeah, he you know he got blamed for the by many people for that big Raiders ending run, and it wasn't really on him. Regardless, the Washington Commanders signed Cody Barton to a one-year, three-point-five million deal in the first wave of free agency. There's also an additional one million dollars available in incentives. So he he's gone, and yeah. that is slightly surprising because money-wise, that looks doable. Like if they really wanted to do it, they could do it. And all the other inside linebackers have been signed up. So Leighton Van Der Esch went, uh, uh, Eric Kendricks went. Um, they're all going. They're all gone. I mean, they're, uh, they're all gone now. They're like, you, you, like I, I would, like we talked about Aziz Al Shair. So like he plays Sam. It's hard to evaluate him because he's not asked to do things. But he at least has a skill set. He, you almost view him as like a prospect and mm. go, well, translate him to the scheme. Can they coach him up? But even he, guys like that are gone now. Yeah, he's gone. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so, also, do you, well, do you want to just talk about Barton or are you done with Barton? Well, so I just, well, one thing we should say though is because we can, we can watch other Fangio teams, we can watch what they do in coverage. All those teams, they are only able to, cloud the side to their when when it's like nickel say like say two four five or four two five nickel forget about the run for a second like third downs and stuff when they have nickel packages that involve two linebackers on the field they can only do interesting things with the slot defender to the nickel side so that because that as in carry routes because that because they don't have a linebacker that can carry carry routes like when we say oh he can carry routes it isn't just some like nebulous like football tape nerd guy who just likes to say that about linebacker like it's not just something like that all those teams they can't do anything to the to the slot formation or the the two receiver side opposite the nickel and thus offenses always know that it's going to be quarters to that side um or or they cloud it but then they know that guy's just going to be a spot dropping curl defender so seattle had the rare scenario where their mike and their will can carry routes that that made them like for the half quarter, 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 half teams that made them like ambidextrous and that they could have Cody do things that like you could ask a nickel to do. Mm. So that like he was matching things with inside leverage and outside leverage, like running like brackets, even on a tight end occasionally on third and eight or whatever. Yeah, You can't do that with a like watching these other schemes. They don't do anything like Alex Singleton is a flat defender. He's just, he's just jetting out to the flat snap after snap. Bobby Wagner is put at will and nickel on like, like not uh, like not bare nickel or tight nickel, but like two, four, five, four, two, five nickel. And they're just having him hug the running back. Like that's the extent of what they do. So, so like the, all these schemes, even though they don't emphasize linebacker play, they're getting figured out by good offenses when they themselves don't have elite personnel because they're so like predictable and we, we think about oh fangio too high numbers in the passing game multiplicity you know you know uh lack of predictability but they're getting really predictable when you can't do a lot with your linebackers and yeah and especially if team offenses get into you know heavier personnel to then force them into base then that's where the the mismatch gets picked on but like as right. like the Chargers tried that against seattle and Barton's basically kind of made Seattle's defensive game plan uh, complete. It joined it all up, and it gave them more answers than the the Chargers had uh, answer for every question they posed. So, but 
it, it's sad and it, it kind of sucks and you know I, and it's, I it's, don't... it's concerning for another reason because are they then saying the run defense wasn't good enough because the performance wasn't good enough relative to what was being schemed or was the scheme putting them in a bad situation like does this signal we need to find a better linebacker for the precise scenarios like are they taking the wrong lesson from it well and we saw like the drop off from from Barton to Tanner Muse and uh uh who who came in they like signed guys off the streets and stuff and and like typically Fangio teams don't value the off ball linebacker position and they there's more of like an emphasis on the on D line which is like a phil- philosophical roster building thing maybe Seattle's which sorry to cut you off but like i agree that i think it's more of a economics thing and not what they think about football because when they had roquan smith they were using him to the full extent in chicago when we when we say the words or the name vic fangio my mind goes to san francisco 49ers and who are the best players on that team navarro bowman and patrick willis and so like this this notion that they don't use linebackers i feel like that was a staley a brandon staley interview taken out of context and him responding to the players at his disposal and then the way that the the market is going right now and the fact that there aren't a lot of 240 pound human beings that run four fours you know so but anyway there you go so Yeah, it's it's interesting. Like, are they going to plan to offset that with if Jamal Adams is healthy? Are they are they planning to just run even more nickel uh, and that kind of deal? You know what? As well, maybe they draft the safety. Like Schneider spoke about how big nickel was taking over in the league. I think it was on the radio, and he he said about how um, uh, Dallas and what Dan Quinn's doing with uh, big safeties is interesting. And so maybe Seattle delves more into that world really with how the the nfl draft is looking like we're not that big on the inside linebackers we will preview the position there's obviously a massive hole on the roster right now like maybe they just view it as something where we're not going to run that much base three four so we can just get a guy who's a thumper and and we we're happy to give up the coverage versatility that that means and that's that we'll 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 run, try and run more nickel bear and fire zones. Maybe they'll fire zone more in in base to and send that guy who, and and let Brooks handle more in terms of the coverage stuff. But it's just a bit, you know, it's a bit surprising that they have gone this light at the position, even even with all those factors in there. So the one remaining person, <laughs> oh god. The one remaining person as uh, Dakota. Thank you so much for the donation, Dakota. I remember you. Uh, you're very kind. Um, on a percent scale, what is the likelihood that the Seahawks signed Bobby Wagner? 80% sure, 90% sure. I'd have said at the start of free agency, like 2%. And like, if you had heard Schneider talk about it on the radio he was like, yeah, we talked. We had some frank discussions. It didn't sound like they were going to be that interested. They were sort of just hearing Bobby out. He's obviously his own representative. That's really cool. And, yeah, they probably just talking. But now the the big thing was the Dallas Cowboys were interested in Wagner, and that seemed like a really cool fit because he could, like, play in their man-to-man coverage looks. 
he could be put in situations where he's basically rushing the back. If the back releases, then he he covers the back out of the backfield. But he's rushing. He's playing downhill. Uh, the way that they use Mika Parsons in base, where they play bare, but Parsons is off the ball. Wagner could basically do that, and then you free up Parsons to play as uh, back down on the line of scrimmage. He's like a compliment for that, and also takes some snaps off Parsons. Basically, turning him into like a blitzing weapon where he has very in, uh, easy coverage assignments, that sort of stuff. So, when it comes to um, Wagner in Seattle, though, because the Cowboys signed, re signed Leighton Van der Esch, they no longer have a need at linebacker. Wagner in Seattle is a bit worrying because of the reasons we've already talked about. Like, <sighs> This is horrid to do because he's a Seahawks legend. He should be in the Ring of Honor. Uh, he's one of my favorite players of all time. He literally made what the Seahawks are doing on defense possible. Like, there's very few people who at their prime could uh, turn and run in the way he did, not just in the weak hook of cover three, carrying the three receiver up and back, but some of his drops in the strong hook where he get got under flood or like sail combinations and dealt with the issues of that downfield was. Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely brilliant. But my word, Wagner, as a uh, as a player right now is well, he's an all pro Griff. So weird that an all pro would have very little interest after having an all pro season and also be released from his contract by said team. Uh, but he can't run anymore, and he can't move, and. His lateral agility was waning in 2021. As much as it hurt for Seattle to move on to, from him, as much as it hurt to see him go to a divisional rival, we acknowledge that this was the right time to move on because he couldn't do the things that they were asking in coverage. Okay, as I said, Seattle's running a coverage system that better suits Wagner now. Like, they hug the back. They uh, don't, in cover three, ask their linebackers to uh, take as much conflict. They kind of hug the check down more. They don't get as much depth in their zones. They they play kind of in a tighter space. But we saw Wagner in this coverage system, basically the same coverage system last year, and the Rams had the scheme around him. And there was a number of times where players on the Rams seemed to think Wagner would play something, and he didn't because he couldn't. There's times where he, he was playing a, you know, you, you'd have him you know, he'd give up a lot of space because he has to just play up and back to then rally down to the check down because he doesn't have speed. He, I, I don't yeah. want to keep uh, talking about it because it is uh, an unfortunate um, truth and I don't like doing it. But he cannot move in the way that Seattle would need their linebackers to move. And if they're, if they're going to sign him, then he is a very kind of one and a half dimensional player. And obviously incredibly intelligent, incredible experience, veteran leadership, um, Football intelligence, seen it all, uh, massively liked, uh, great guy. Um, uh, Interesting how he brought in his um, uh, books to uh, press conferences and, and told the beat reporters about the kind of uh, the beat, the, you know, the, the books he was reading. But on the field, it's, it's rough out here. And like, there's just watch, watch the Rams versus the 49ers at home and with McCaffrey. And then watch the um, watch the Rams versus the Seahawks. Um, that both those games uh, with yeah. the Seahawks in at the Rams as well. Both those games are like 
you know, this guy is limiting what the Rams are able to do coverage wise and also just limiting the whole defensive structure. Like he, yeah, I've said enough. I've had enough. I don't want this to happen. If it happens, I am. It's going to be unfortunate because I think people, it's not how it should go down, you know? Right. And what is the percent chance? I mean, at this point with there being like no one, like the cupboards are bare at linebacker free agency. If they're going to sign someone, I mean, he might be the only guy left at this point. So, um, I mean, yeah, it would, it would, it would legitimately be concerning because, because like, I mean, Raheem Morris, the, the reason why he was able to be so aggressive against the run was because they made his coverage responsibility. They structured their whole defense so that Bobby only ever had the running back or was covering a zone responsible for where the running back normally goes. So because of that, he could be very aggressive against the run. And sure enough, he was productive, but it was at the expense of his own coverage because his run defense would take him to his pass coverage. So like what he was asked to do in pass coverage wasn't very valuable. And then on top of that, it greatly, you know, hamstrung with the the full extent of what the Rams could do. Sure enough, they had a really bad pass defense this past year. Now it's not all Bobby. There was lots of things going on. Um, But and then even in spite of that, Shane Waldron's game plan was trying to isolate Wagner, trying to take Morris out of doing what he was doing with Bobby and putting Bobby back in those precarious situations. The results weren't good for the Rams, at least that first game. So, um, you know, that's just kind of uh, just kind of what was going on. Now, Lee LaRiviere just did just put in the chat Levante David. I watched Levante David a couple of games of his, and he's still a good player. He's not as fast as he used to be, but you could still be a good player at linebacker and Can not be as move? fast as he used to be. His change of direction is pretty good. The long speed is gone, though. So yeah, maybe you can't have him matching routes, but his spot dropping is really good. His run defense is still really good, so he lets you be flexible. Because um, that's the thing with Bobby, which was so stark in 2021. His like agility had just disappeared. Levante still has a, a good enough agility. Um, so I mean, he he misses a couple of tackles, but that's kind of his range with his anticipation puts him in situations where you know it's like a diving tackle situation. So I don't know how much I should hold that against him. But I mean, he's just a solid player. Now they can't go pay him. They can't give him the contract that the that the Rams gave Bobby last year. They can pay him five million at most, and I don't even know if that's smart with what you know what else they can maybe do in free agency. Um, you know, so I, I I don't know, I don't know. It really feels like we're gonna have to dig into this linebacker class, which doesn't feel great. Um, yeah. You know. So I mean, we'll we'll talk about it, but Jack Campbell tested incredibly well but I don't know how. And he's kind of the, like his tape is the antithesis of what the Seahawks would look for in an inside linebacker. It's completely against like the sideline to sideline, um, can run downfield routes, uh, is really fast into the backfield kind of tape. Now, maybe that's the new kind of prototype of linebacker that they're looking for to complement Brooks, but I'd be surprised. He also has very short arms, which I mean, it does show up. Like he 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 makes it work with how he uh, takes blocks on and wins through them. But yeah, it's the NFL, so that's something to think about. 
Dayan Henley was really impressed with the senior ball and coverage, but like, I don't, um, yeah, I wasn't he's, as impressed with his tape. So. And he's very light. So, yeah, and yeah. So we'll, we'll delve into that. Anyway, it's a bit of a bit of a thing, and I'm very surprised. And we weren't impressed with our brief overview of the inside linebacker class. So, uh, yeah, I did they expect to be in this position? I mean, I don't know. We're for, like good for Cody though. Like he gets to go play in uh, Washington behind uh, Montez Sweat, Down Payne, Jonathan Allen, Chase Young. Like, and I don't know. I'm interested. Is he the? Is he their Sam? Is he their Will? Is he their Mike? He, he yeah. might be their Mike. Like, I don't know what a Cole Holcomb is. Cole Holcomb. Don't know who that is, but he might be their Mike. Um, so good for him, and hopefully he he uh, proves it in Washington. Anyway, and it probably it probably signals that Ken Norton Jr. put in a good word with him because Ken Norton Jr.'s buddies with Jack Del Rio, the defensive coordinator in Washington. So I don't know. There's some connection there. That's how it works. Okay, <coughs> to the offense. The Eagles signed uh, former Seahawks running back Rashad Penny to a one-year, $1.35 million deal with $600,000 guaranteed and a maximum value of $2.1 million. So that's a bummer. Now, could Seattle have uh, offered more money than that? Sure. Now, they, they obviously have Kenneth Walker of third. The big thing there is Penny is signing for a, a team who was in the Super Bowl, have a great offensive line. And he would be the, in theory, showcase back. The Eagles did sign another back as well. It might have been Boston Scott. But um, Penny should be the number one if he can stay healthy. And that if he can stay healthy is the big question mark because, you know, he's averaged over six yards per carry, but he's had so many injuries over the years. But best of luck to him uh, because at his best, we saw what he could be. And it was so cool knowing that the Seahawks had Penny as the starter and then as a kind of explosive home run hitter, but also really improved as kind of uh, eking out yards as well. And then had this kind of amazing rookie and Walker. Such a shame he got injured again last year. Maybe this is Seattle saying, okay, you're 26 now. Um, we, we don't think you can stay healthy for a full season. But like at that money, like the Eagles really have nothing to lose uh, uh, making that kind of signing of uh, just $600,000 guaranteed money. And it's slightly surprised Seattle uh, didn't try and make it work, but then like how much more money would you have had to offer Penny for him to stick around uh, in a like worse situation for his uh, opportunity? Uh, Drift, what's your thoughts on this? Yeah, I would have liked to have brought him back, but I mean, with, with, for what, he, for what he signed in Philadelphia, I mean, they could have done that easily if they wanted to. So they clearly didn't want to. Um, so I don't, I don't know. Um, there you go <laughs> yeah i don't have any thoughts beyond that uh, lee in the group chat makes a good point maybe he didn't want to split snaps with walker i mean yeah like you said he gets to be the lead back there so maybe that was a variable um but also my thinking is well given his injury history does he feel like splitting snaps is actually good for him himself i don't know so the wear and tear isn't there yeah i don't know and Seattle's running back room is even lighter because Travis Homer 
is leaving. He's signed a two-year deal worth a maximum of $4.5 million with the Chicago Bears. That is good for Homer. <laughs> yeah, good for He's him. obviously had few offensive snaps uh, carrying the football, relatively. But as a pass protector and then as a, uh, as a you know, special teamer as well and just a kind of gritty guy, try-hard guy, Homer was a very, very valuable contributor that just, you know, really you should be able to draft that. And yeah, the, yeah, not, not it, a guy you need to bring back. It isn't. And good for him that he got uh, some money from another team. And will Seattle address running back in free agency? Potentially Jamal Williams is available. He, the Detroit Lions, they signed someone i can't remember who they signed oh david montgomery so you know there's there's still some interesting free agent names out there have to see what happens obviously the draft there's you know you should be able to get a pass protection back and seattle should be able to coach a guy up so we'll, we'll see what happens there if it worst comes to worst nick below can be an emergency pass protecting back like right um we'll have something to monitor though and you know uh, Bijan Robinson is is quite a good player in the draft. If uh, the Seahawks want to annoy people with their first round pick, that would be nice. And finally, away from free agency, the Seahawks announced the mystery secondary coach, and they also announced their uh, 2023 coaching staff and sort of gave people titles. So we wondered if it had been Ed Donatel because. If it would be Ed Donatel, because Pete Carroll mentioned how this guy had worked uh, with previous coaches. But instead, it's a really cool hire. It's a 42-year-old called Rory Anderson who has worked uh, uh, with coaching safeties in the past. Amazing background. So in 2004, he was a grad assistant at LSU under Nick Saban. From 2005-2007, he was a player personnel assistant at the Baltimore Ravens under Rex Ryan. He stuck around in Baltimore to coach uh, uh, as a defensive assistant where he was with Greg Matteson and Chuck Pagano. Chuck Pagano took him to the Colts to be a, a safeties coach where he worked under Greg Minuski as well. He then was in the Vic Fangio tree the year after Fangio left the 49ers and became a safeties coach there in 2016. And then he joined the Chicago Bears 2017 to 2018, working under Vic Fangio himself with Clint Hurt, with... Um, Oh no, Sean Desai is not in on the Seahawks anymore, but would have been with Sean Desai. So people knew him as well. And then goes to LSU in 2019, clearly looking for some work after Fangio left the Bears, and is a defensive analyst under Dave Aranda before finally going to the Minnesota Vikings, uh, where he's the assistant defensive backs coach, worked with Kyle Scott, obviously worked under Mike Zimmer, worked with Ed Donatello in 2022. And finally, he's landed in Seattle. His official title is as secondary coach. So that looks like a, a brilliant hire, like a fairly young coach who's been in so many different systems, worked with uh, Seattle's coaching staff too uh, in, in, private, in prior stops. And yeah, the, nothing to lose and kind of cool that he's focusing on the safeties like um, like uh, Desai was, whereas Carl Scott was more of a kind of corner guy. I'm sure they all do everything and... Obviously, mm -hmm. Seattle still has Deshaun Shedd as the assistant DB's uh, cornerbacks coach as well. 
Um, yeah, Griff, what's your thoughts on this? Um, it's cool that uh, like Carl Scott kind of gets the and you know the promotion, right? So, um, I mean, he has a lot of he has a lot of um, background with different kinds of ways of of trying to blend together packages to, to you know to kind of define your identity on, on defense. So. Um, like obviously he'll still, he's still the passing game coordinator. So he'll still have a, a, a big hand in like the details of the coverage, but it'll be interesting to see if, if he has a different take on, on how to, how to, um, structure themselves. Um, obviously Clint Hurts still going to have a big hand in that as well as Pete Carroll, but we might see minor differences. Uh, but I like the idea of him having more influence just because he's been around so many people. So, Naturally, it makes sense that if you're going to promote him, bring in a guy that he himself is familiar with too, and Roy Anderson. So um, let them divide and conquer and delegate accordingly. So, you know, beyond that, like, I don't know how you're supposed to parse if a position coach is good or bad, you know, uh, especially as an outsider. But, you know, I like Scott. And if Scott likes Anderson, then I like Anderson. So, you know, yeah, that's, uh, that's how I see it. Yeah, and that is cool. Um, and Pete's been consistent on like letting young coaches do their thing, and um, you know, Everett win forever. It's in there. Yeah. And other promotions. So Nico Thorpe, who was coaching with the team last year, but he didn't really have an official title. I think he'd been working on special teams, but he was always on the sideline looking hype. But he's actually got a title now. He's a defensive assistant. Uh, Will Tukarafu is still a defensive assistant, defensive line coach. But I think the defensive line aspect of that has been added on. I mean, it's it was obvious though, but like maybe he has a slightly grown role in his second year with the team. Uh, Greg Olson is listed as the quarterback coach, which we knew was going to happen. BT Jordan, uh, or Brandon Jordan, as I referred to him on the podcast where we talked about it, he arrives from Michigan State and his title is the pass rush specialist. So his role is going to be kind of unique like it was at Michigan State, I think. And then there's two other names that I don't think have been reported. So uh, Donovan Jackson has arrived as an offensive assistant. Uh, and so has Robbie uh, Picasso. But I'm going to say that's Picasso, an offensive artist. He was uh, he was at Rice, it appears. But Rice's website won't let me access their website from the UK. So that's fun. And at Stanford. And... Um, <laughs> So there you go. And he was apparently an assistant coach with the Houston Texans. This is great podcasting. But anyway, some, some other stuff. names that we'll delve it. into. I'm nailing it. It's very hard being a, a, a I'm playing all the different. You are. You're wearing many One man band, except I'm and not. I'm just, I have a support act. And I'm just sitting here. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, th thanks everyone for tuning in. Like the video. If you're If this is your first time, subscribe to the channel. If you haven't subscribed to the channel, subscribe to the channel. If it's your first time also, though, this is a podcast. So in your podcast app, that could be any of them, search Seattle Overload, click download, and then five-star review and be like, wow, this was really weird hearing uh, a British boy uh, talk about Seattle football with a American man. There you go. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We will be back on Thursday with an outside linebacker's look. Ty and I will have a new show, probably reacting to more free agency news. Maybe we'll find out who Robbie Picasso and Donovan Jackson are. 
do a bit of delving into that. And we'll, we'll join you again soon 